0: Welcome to Essential Ethics and this recording from the 2020 National Paediatric Bioethics Conference. I'm your podcast host, Professor John Massey, Clinical Director of the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre. This session is about the ethics of managing risk to staff. Since the conference is about COVID-19, The first part of the discussion is about the risk to staff from contracting COVID-19 at work and what level of risk staff should be prepared to accept in their workplace. The discussion moves, however, to the difficult topic of how to consider risk to staff from patients and parents. There are obvious parallels to the risk from COVID-19, but clear differences when the perpetrator is a moral agent, that is, the patient or parent, and when it is a virus. Risk to staff from patient and parents is a growing problem. And in this session, we will hear of a program to recognize and mitigate the risk. The session is shared between Professor Lynn Gillum and Professor Claire Delaney from the Children's Bioethics Center, and Professor Helen Irving, pediatric oncologist and clinical lead for children, health ethics and law at the Queensland Children's Hospital and University of Queensland. This
1: is where I want to lead us to, Um, is the situation with COVID-19 and the responsibility of healthcare staff to uh, accept some risk of being infected with COVID-19, is that the same for aggressive and abusive behaviour by parents and families? I thought it would be helpful um, to define what we're talking about when we talk about aggressive and abusive behaviour. So here's um, a hybrid definition that Helen's put together for us any incident where health professionals experience abuse or are threatened or assaulted or have fear of assault in circumstances related to their work that can lead either to an explicit or an implicit challenge to their safety, wellbeing and health. So it's physical, it's verbal, um, it can be passive um, interference with staff work, which is experienced as uh, threatening. Um, and professional threats, for example, threats to sue or to report people. So uh, here's the question I want to ask. Do health professionals have a duty or a responsibility to provide care to patients, even when there's some risk to themselves? I wanted to start off in relation to infectious diseases and then move to aggressive or abusive behaviour. And if there is a responsibility, how strong is it? what factors would make it less strong, um, and what would be the limits to that? So in order to try and answer that question, we need to get some idea of what the basis could be for health professionals having some sort of obligation or duty responsibility to um, provide care in infectious diseases situations. There's actually been quite a lot written about this. There are a lot of publications relating to, uh, first of all, HIV, and then later on, Ebola, SARS and MERS, which have unpacked what the nature of this duty is. So there's, I guess, four standard ways of thinking about it. One is to say that um, the health professions have internal values. One of those is altruism, um, putting the patient's interests above your own interests, and that's the basis of responsibility to accept some risk to self in order to provide care to patients. There's also a social contract approach which essentially says that's what society expects of health professionals in exchange for what society provides for them, which is, I guess, social status, um, pay, access to various benefits. And when people make a voluntary choice to enter the profession, they know what's expected in terms of that social contract. So they've voluntarily chosen to take on essentially that obligation of altruism to put patients' interests ahead of their own. And a number of authors have suggested that in an epidemic or a pandemic um, when there's a crisis that actually increases the strength of the responsibility um, so as someone mentioned, I think yesterday, this is a little bit like the idea that if you join the army, hoping that it will be peaceful, you have to also be prepared for there to be a war and you're going to be in harm's way because that's part of our job. I should just say at some point, there's a little theme in the literature around saying responsibility or duty is too strong a term, and we should see it as, I guess, a professional virtue, but it's not as strong as an obligation. And these authors want to be able to say Health professionals who choose to accept some risk to themselves should be praised. They're doing a praiseworthy thing. Uh, it's not just a matter of doing what you ought to do. Um, and we might want to discuss that more a bit later. In terms of um, what, where the limits might lie, or what are the factors that would make it, I guess, more morally obligatory to take some risk, if we think particularly in relation to COVID 19 now. The COVID-19 situation is, is actually relatively low risk to healthcare workers, despite those numbers that I've shown you. In comparison to other infectious diseases, there's low infectivity and sexually low mortality. Again, as someone said, I think yesterday, if we were talking about Ebola, the situation might be very different. Another important factor is that there are ways of protecting against risk, and the risk can be mitigated, um, and those steps are being taken. They include use of personal protective equipment when available, and that has been an issue, I guess. Exclusion of visitors who are a source of risk and reduction in face-to-face contact by moving um, our patients to telehealth by cancelling elective surgery and so on. Also, if someone's exposed, they can be tested immediately. And if someone gets sick, they can be treated immediately. So there's lots of, I guess, uh, safety in place. So those are things to do with the nature of the infection. There's also some things which might be ethically relevant, and I raise them here because they may come up again in relation to aggressive or abusive behaviour. So patients who have or might have COVID-19 don't intend or want to put the health professionals at risk, and it's in fact not within their control. I can't voluntarily choose not to be infectious. And in fact, the reason they're in hospital is, particularly if they're, they have COVID-19 themselves, that's why they're here. They're, they're here because they've got a COVID-19 infection and that's what is putting them at risk. So this is unavoidable, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. It couldn't be otherwise. The other thing is that As an infectious disease, the risk is fairly quantifiable. Um, It's predictable and containable. Um, The virus is not going to have a a fit of rage and do something that no one was expecting, we hope. Um, And that might be a way in which um, human behavior differs from viral behavior. Uh, So the literature suggests that the the strength of the obligation to accept risk from COVID-19 or other infectious diseases is quite strong, provided there are those protective steps in place. But the strength of the obligation to accept risk from aggressive or abusive behaviour is maybe zero, or if anything, it's very low. So the literature on the whole suggests that they're not the same, that there's an important difference between them. Uh, So that's where I'd like to leave it. So what I hope to have done there is raise some questions in your mind and ask you to think about whether it matters where the source of risk comes from when we're talking about any level of obligation to accept risk in order to provide care and to think about how much of some of those other factors mean about the the avoidability of risk, the extent to which it can be uh, mitigated and the extent to which the risk is maybe under the control in some sense of the people who are causing the risk. So with those questions in your mind, I'm going to hand over to Helen. Thank you, Lynn. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Um, So yes, Lyn,
2: you've posed a few very interesting questions that I guess some of us may not have considered before, particularly when we're talking about aggressive and abusive behaviour from patients or their families. So I am going to expand a little bit on the evidence that Lynn's already highlighted, but then also to use a couple of cases. But I think we've, we've also heard about the weekend in August in the emergency department, which also has illustrated some very key issues around family violence and the impact upon the child and also upon staff and families. Um, A bit like you, Lynn, noted in the chat that um, where did the literature come from? Well, a lot of that actually has come from the adult emergency departments and um, so I've got a few slides now just about the details specifically around children's hospital settings and I think there are significant differences and also as has been alluded to in some of the chat earlier. So those of you who are um, from the RCH Melbourne will be familiar with this work and certainly with Sandy Hopper's paper from uh, 2012, and also with um, the Code Grey response team. But I I hadn't seen this article before, so um, I just thought the following slides, Claire, will just show a little bit of the results here. So over a 14 month period, Sandy and her team um, um, reported about 135 separate code grey incidents. There was descriptive data for 104 of those and you can see there 29 of those related to visitors which were essentially carers and parents. So that left us with about 75 patient reports and of those 70, 40 were actually the patients themselves. So there were several several code grey calls to um, the same patient which is not uncommon in some of the um, Certainly the cases and the cases that we see through our clinical ethics service have repeated issues that have arisen in one particular patient or family. The median age you can see there was 15 and there were a few patients who were over 18 and that was mainly because of difficulty in transitioning to adult services. And then the second table on the left does show some of the underlying conditions. Not unsurprisingly, we see substance abuse, use, neurodevelopment and and organic CNS disease and also psychiatric illness. Obviously environmental issues such as isolation, fear, anxiety and frustration are relevant and particularly uh, with respect to COVID and the restrictive attendance and isolations that have impact upon staff as well as the families. The next slide just outlines where the places of Code Grey occurred. Um, and then the following slide is from our Queensland data from the last 12 months that our quality safety unit pulled out for us recently. So you can see again that this is very similar results um, around the incidents of um, occupational violence, um, whether that be verbal aggression, physical aggression, or a threat of physical aggression and physical aggression still remains uh, one of the highest reported. But I think it really indicates though that we actually don't report the verbal abuse that we're subject to. So if we go to the next slide, this is a paper from Northern Ireland um, that Gerry Mackin uh, published in t- 2001, and describes specifically a survey that he has performed on 75 paediatric trainees. And we've also noted in the chat, Danny has talked about before, about how a lot of the literature is about adult work and that in paediatrics, we are more accepting of behaviour. Threats are often overlooked and particularly verbal abuse because it can be seen just as part of our job. It also recognises that parents may behave in in uncharacteristic manners when they've got a sick child and with respect to children and adolescents, we give them all a little bit of leeway because the young person is sick and also vulnerable and certainly indeed the parents and carers are. in this survey, of, of the 75 paediatric trainees who were interviewed, 91% had reported that they had experienced some form of abuse in the last 12 months. And even with that poll we did earlier, Lynn, um, whilst some of the numbers were a bit lower, over 94% of respondents to that poll have experienced some form of abuse in their career. So it is clearly something that we need to be more concerned about and I think this paper also illustrated that only 13% of these paediatric trainees actually reported any incidents. 60% continue to report worrying about a particular incident after work. The paper doesn't describe how long that worry was or what the extent of worry was. But absolutely, um, I think the key issue is that we are under-reporting uh, things that have an impact upon our mental and physical health. And we know that verbal abuse can actually escalate, as we'll illustrate in the cases and also some of the cases we've already heard this last few days, can lead to heightened episodes with aggression and actually can lead to physical and violent assaults. So the other thing is that the other consequences of the trauma is that it can lead to demoralisation can lead to diminished morale and distress upon staff and can also impact decision-making. And I think, and this is where we need to also look about the, at risks in, of harm in that the risks of harm for some of the patients is that there can be reduction in, in interference or inconsequence, inconsistency in care delivery. So this is Michael, Michael's a made up person Um, But is a composite of a number of people and I'm sure that many in the audience will actually have met a Michael or a Mary or someone very similar to him so let's talk a bit about him so he's a let's say he's a 13 year old boy who's had a prolonged inpatient stay at this hospital in fact several months in and out of the mental health unit and also the general pediatric unit He um, has had numerous prior admissions for anxiety and depression. Um, He's had treatment previously for an eating disorder, and he comes from um, a family that is very chaotic, and also there's a history of trauma within that family. He has disorganized attachment with his parents, uh, and they've also been very inconsistent with his management and follow-up. Um, and has had some volatile relationships himself with both staff and other inpatients. So he presents to ED as we've heard from Mark before, in that this is not an uncommon scenario either. So he spits and he swears at the nursing staff. He refuses to have the wounds from his self-inflicted um, injuries dressed and cleaned, and repeatedly continues to say he wants to die and actually attempts to run from ED and ends up out on the street. He is actually brought back in and his father has brought him in and forcefully restrains him. Uh, He's had some, also some pharmacological restraint and is actually transferred to our mental health ward. The ED staff on the slide picture there are actually relieved to see him out of the unit. he gets admitted, he gets commenced on some medication and finally settles, Uh, the medications are reduced, but he rapidly deteriorates And again, behaviourally requires um, seclusion uh, and some physical and pharmacological restraint. Despite this, he then improves again, but continues to lash out at nurses, junior doctors and the therapists, both verbally and physically attempting to throw chairs uh, and um, anything that's in his room at the staff. So using our incident report, you know, throughout his admission, there are about a hundred incident reports that have been reported related to his behaviour, as well as in addition to attempted self-harm in the ward. He's actually also threatening to charge the staff in the unit with assault. So this goes back to what Lynn was saying earlier and to what extent and how can staff manage these patients as well as our own distress, as well as then providing optimal care for um, young people such as as Michael. And going back to the question is the, how to what extent do we manage uh, the abuse from young people compared to uh, the risks of infection from infectious diseases or from exposure to COVID? We heard yesterday from the Murray River region, from the uh, Ichuka Regional Health Survey of staff, and also from the crowd poll um, at the conference, that actually about a third of staff would actually not accept the risk of getting COVID in the event of an outbreak if there was not a safe environment in which to work. So should there be, and is there a similar response around the risk of uh, staff when not properly prepared to um, or supported or have a safe environment when faced with such violent or aggressive behaviour from patients. So if we look at the next slide, this sort of is um, taken from one of our um, health services, um, hierarchy of control measures for when there is a hazard So we could say that Michael's uh, aggressive aggressive behaviour of throwing chairs, um, fighting and so forth is um, a hazard. Um, So, and in this situation, do we eliminate that hazard? Ideally, it's the preferred control according to um, this particular hierarchy. Um, And then with the use of personal protective equipment. And again, I'm going to quote um, Danny Gold again and suggest that, do we have the emotional PPE that we need uh, when looking after young people and their parents and patients when we are abused? So if we can leave you to think upon that model um, and also continue to think on Lynn's questions. And we're moving along now, what do we do when we have an aggressive parent? So this is Sally, Sally's, you know, obviously one of our star oncology patients, who's also the face of the foundation funding page. Um, but look, she's got relapsed leukaemia, and all the nurses love her, of course. She's, you know, she's cute, she's compliant, she's actually a delight to look after, and they've actually known her now for over 15 months. And she has relapsed, unfortunately, needs a BMT. Her mother, however, threatens the staff, swears all the time, says that the staff have failed her daughter because she's relapsed. She's actually refusing to be cared for by some staff, either because of their nationality or background, and she refuses straight out to talk to some of them. Um, She's actually been very aggressive and physically aggressive and some of the nursing staff have been threatened, physically threatened, and um, there have been a number of Code Blacks related to her punching walls in. She's also taken the child off the pepper filtered ward at times. So the list goes on. She's accusing the staff also of of, um, restricting visiting in isolation during COVID restrictions, even though her child's got leukemia. She thinks therefore that patient is more important than the others in the unit. Um, And she's also refusing to have temperature checks and screening questions when she visits the hospital. So I guess some of these examples could be explained by the additional challenges of having a sick child in hospital and one who's got a life-threatening illness. But again, how do we, how do we actually manage this? And how do staff react? There are a number of ways that staff react. And they react by being angry themselves, and that can either be subconsciously or consciously displayed. Um, they can actually collude with the family so that they also have, and have a desire to appease, so they avoid confrontation and please, and and actually submit to every request the parent makes. They avoid them altogether and saying, "I'm not going to be rostered on to look after that child today." And what can also happen, as we highlighted before, is that there can actually be bending to the parent or the carer's requests and demands, and so up to management when our family-centred care models actually become more of a family-directed and allowed um, care. So other common themes, we you know many of you will be very, very familiar with this. Um, We request for not looking after the patient. The team of clinicians have been given the sack. How many times do you walk through the tea room and someone says, oh, well, they've given us the sack, but that's all right, we'll go back next week. Well, the family must be stressed. That's why it's so difficult for them. But the child is so lovely, therefore it's okay for us. We need to recognise that they're going through a hard time. And we have a thing called the rhymes rule here and we get threatened with escalation. Other extremes can be some will say, well, thank God, I'm going to be having, I'm going to be on maternity leave when poor little Sally's coming in for a bone marrow transplant or I really wish I could be on, I really wish that I could be on night duty. So one of our senior nurses actually has also said, overall, I am just weary. I am weary of the many hours that we spend managing these families. It's so draining to be constantly on guard to prevent escalation. It means that my other families and patients are not getting the um, care and attention that I want. This mother has also threatened to run out onto the road so that we'll get priority because she's got a broken leg. So there are hours and hours of time that is spent looking after these young people and their families. And we'll just open it up for a little bit of discussion.
0: Some of the the, the comments that are coming out uh, just towards the end uh, are things that we see in terms of desiring to appease the parent and for a whole lot of reasons, to make one's own life easier, uh, staff uh, ward life, staff life easier, or even... When they're threatening to sue or go public, and uh, reputational risk for the hospital, is that that leaves the child behind, and so we we sort of perhaps try and justify it in a family-centred care model, trying to make the family happy, but we leave the child behind, and and that is then you know very very distressing, and I think quite eroding to staff morale because you know, my experience here at RCH, and I'm sure for all the children's hospitals uh, that are represented here. Um, you know we're here to look after the, the kids and we're not able to do that when we're constrained from doing that 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 then um, leaves some you know, moral distress for us and then I think that then comes round to a sort of institutional support that's being hinted at a little bit more at the beginning of the, some of the chat and, and institutional support is about the mechanisms that are in place and obviously the, the code grey response and that's highlighted by the Sandy Hopper paper and really been working well here but it goes a bit beyond that because you know i think that there's a personal toll and personal support uh that needs i'd be interested matt um is uh on the line here and and matt does something that you know we've talked about and i'm interested perhaps clarify might see if matt's able to to make a few comments yeah thanks um
3: i think it's interesting that some families don't know how to respond to stressful situations. So they revert almost to the way that it's not an immature reaction, but it's almost how we've moved through the ideas and concepts about the inappropriateness of smacking children is that actually there's an educational part to that, but there's also a maturity aspect of people understanding the implications of their own behavior. And so for me, when I reflect on some of the difficult cases that we've had it's been about empowering and educating the parents to be able to react in a different way rather than resorting to aggression or potential violence because it's almost like that, that's their default situation, but you are able to take them out. With some difficult discussions, you are able to take them out of that sphere to a certain degree and get them to react in a bit more of a mature way.
4: Mm. And the question that Lynn originally Posed. um you can't sort of change the behaviour of a virus, but you can do do something with aggressive, you know, probe it a bit more and and work out why it's happening and and work on it. And I think what the the theme we're going to pick up um, at the end of this is um, how much time do you spend doing that, and and you know, how do you do it, and and um, where is there a limit? Um,
3: Whether you can or can't bring the family or parents around to a better way of coping. There's no doubt that um, occupational violence, which is effectively what it is, is inexcusable. And, you know, many people have chatted in the comments about the adverse impact that has on the care that they're able to provide. And so I think you should step we should step into that space to understand that almost the parents are part of the family unit as, as being the patient and try to take them on that journey. But there are specific limits. And in executive, we certainly put those limits in place when appropriate.
2: Thanks, Matt. I, unfortunately, our um, Executive Director of Hospital Services isn't able to be here today either, but he's certainly been very involved in many of these cases, as you have as well, Matt. And it's, it's, it's about an understanding as much as possible, supporting the families. Um, but we have certainly got an organisational duty to care for staff as well.
1: Um, can I just comment on the, in the, th- Chat, there's been a lot of discussion of the comparison between the two which is fantastic I wanted people to talk about that um, one of the things that's coming to my mind is um, the containability of controllability and how it seems like human behavior is more controllable than viral behavior um, but I think some of the chats are suggesting that maybe for some people it's not or it's certainly not within a the time frame that's necessary or the amount of staff capacity there is to to deal with that. So maybe part of it is about coming to that decision early on, whether this is really actually controllable or not. Um, Claire, I'm wondering if this might be a good point at which to move on to your slides.
4: Yeah, so the first question I'm posing is zero tolerance, the solution. And I think you've all answered that. The idea of saying we won't tolerate any sort of aggression and there'll be a a clear bar from which health professionals are protected. And and so this this is seductive in that it offers a clear policy position and um, it can provide a limit and boundary around specific behaviours. It's reasonably neat and tidy um, on a piece of paper. Uh, and it offers a predictable sort of level of support. So, uh, you know, I think the policy type solution, it shouldn't be discounted. And when I was um, thinking about this, I thought I'd circle all the way back to the very beginning um, of the conference when Anne Price presented um, some artwork and how art can help us think about um, complex issues. And, um, I remember walking into this room in the in the tape gallery in London and it's an installation um of a pharmacy uh by Damien hurst and it's terribly um clean and it's very clinical and and in that sense it, it it's quite calming um however um as Damien has done in this picture he's got this thing called a um Insecticutor, which buzzes and zaps insects and causes death so the idea that he's creating here is that um, although the room has been created to be a temple to modern medicine it's also ironically centered around an agent of death but the the point about this is that you know despite the possibility of order and neatness in policies their indirect tension with the sort of wicked problem of family aggression and, and patient aggression and that, you know, um, neatening the problem and providing um, words around it, it doesn't seem to be enough. It's a much more complex problem. Zero tolerance policies, um, you know, may not work, usually don't work. They do in some circumstances and when you get to a, a finite position, but, um, they don't generally work because staff have different levels of tolerance to, to um, children's behaviour and to families' behaviour and they, and they do a range of things, which is they either try to accommodate it, um, avoid it, take steps to de-escalate and, and manage it in some way. Um, sometimes they um, unintentionally collude with, with families or they might even advocate for a family or a, you know, a, a parent who's being aggressive, thinking that if they just have a little bit more time with this, with this um, parent, they'll be able to bring them around and that, you know, avoiding the damage to the therapeutic relationship. And another reason I think why the zero-tolerance policy doesn't work um, on its own is because it is a bit of a top-down rule and, um, like many uh, policies, it can not so much override or it might ignore the context and it's insufficiently nuanced to the particular situation, such as the child with a disability or who, you know, isn't, isn't able to read, as Kathy was pointing out. And it also doesn't necessarily accommodate to the particular stages of grief or emotions that a family um, is going through. And another thing that it does is that it removes choice for clinicians or their capacity to work out what this family and child needs. So I think we've all agreed that just a single policy doesn't work, but it still leaves open these two questions, which we started with, which is how much then personal risk from aggressive behaviour um, should we accept? And um, we've, sort of tried to contextualise that question and say, well, does it depend whether the risk is um, controllable in some way? And it seems like the answer is it does depend a bit on that. And the question that I'm going to focus more on is, well, how can you set consistent boundaries to challenging behaviours and and recognising there's not one answer and... Uh, I don't want to make this look like it's going to be a simple um, follow this um, traffic light ethics framework and you'll be right. It's there as a supportive framework. And we developed it with um, Neil uh, William Asunder in the uh, rehab department where we had a, I had a few discussions with their uh, team and this very question about managing aggressive families and, and um, aggression generally Um, was raised and over a series of um, discussions we came up with these ideas and I and I want to highlight that um, the reason that the single policy doesn't work so well is because you know the problem of family aggression um, it is a uh, complicated and complex problem and in responding to those types of problems you need several possible ways and I th- and I think in a complex problem you also need to understand it from the ground up, and not just look at it from the consequences that occurs. So you really need to to understand the phenomenon. So that's a, another framework for understanding why it's hard. So this traffic light idea um, really is is. Just to not so much name behaviours that are tolerable, name behaviours that are not, but rather to encourage staff in each sort of department to share what they have, pre- what they're prepared to tolerate, and why, uh, to develop a shared language about aggression and the harms that people are experiencing. And uh, so the idea is to really provide a set of questions for weighing up what sort of aggression and how much should be tolerated in a particular situation. And the other advantage, I think, of this is that it enables all affected staff to be involved in identifying responses and which are feasible to achieve within their department. So it really... um, gives the power to the people working um, on the ground with the problem. So when, when we talked with the rehab team, um, the green behaviours represent um, behaviours in families or, or, or children um, uh, that are accept- acceptable or expected um, or excusable Um, given their circumstances, and and that sort of speaks to what a lot of the conversation has been, which is that trying to find out why a child is angry or frustrated is part of the general care and and it's part of the scope of care that that, um, a team can give. So um, green behaviours are expected and the action that the team needs to do, I think, and this has also been mentioned, the importance of pre-planning is to identify what resources are available to address those types of behaviours that are expected in, in this situation. And um, and, to dis- and this happens automatically to, to decide who's best placed to acknowledge uh, the, the child or the, or the parent's concerns and, and what sort of information they need what sort of support they need. And even at this green behaviour level where where it's standard practice in a way, it still means you need to develop an agreed plan of support or communication because even when things are reasonably straightforward, there can be differences in perspectives about, you know, um, what to say to people and, and how to say it and and when. Now, the amber behaviours are behaviours which have the potential to upset or threaten staff, or to obstruct care, or, or to upset other patients or families on the ward. So, Amber behaviours are um, less excusable, I suppose, if we're going to use that category. They're also um, more harmful. So, I'm, I'm. Um, using both of those types of categories, which is whether or not you can explain them away and how much harm are they causing. So uh, Amber behaviours or behaviours that such as swearing, verbal abuse and all those examples in the two cases that um, were presented by Helen are uh, you know, clearly in that category. Now, the reaction there is where most of the work gets done. And I think when behaviours are starting to overwhelm the resources of the team or the or an individual within the team, it's really important, to court, using this model, uh, to, to sit down and specify, have a discussion, who is being affected and how, and to have that discussion about should this behaviour be tolerated? Like, you know, to, to actually probe what's the cause of it, uh, what's the trauma for, uh, that the family is carrying or the child? You know, how much should this be tolerated? How much sh- should it be excused? And for how long should this be always the way we we um, treat this person? And then part of that discussion is also what options are available, what type of boundaries can achieve staff safety, but also optimise patient care. And there's a lot of complexity in answering that question, which is why, you know, you do need to have the discussion. And the idea of that discussion is to come up with some agreed actions and criteria for putting limits Um, and also agreed actions about just communication about this, the behaviour as it is and and responses to it. There also needs to be agreement to communicate this to the person and, importantly, to identify consequences if they breach those limits. We've had quite a number of CERG cases um, about which probe this or discuss this very issue And we've generally come down to these types of actions. Um, So, you know, what actions can you take ethically, which means that you're not adding harm and burden to the patient or the family, but you're also achieving staff safety. And the red behaviours are those behaviours that you've identified earlier where you do draw a line. um, And they're, you know, they're clearly um, beyond Uh, what is excusable well I say clearly but it might not always be Uh, but they do directly and uh, intimidate or uh, insult staff prevent care for a patient or upset and threaten other families and you may have more to add there and um the role there in this um, response is essentially to implement previously agreed consequences. So the most of the work is done in the, in the yellow zone and some planning also in the green. So that that's, uh, I'd be really interested. I, I don't think I'm really introducing new things, but I just wrapped them up into, into one um, area. And I, I think, in, the, in my um, work with the rehab team, it was more not so much, you know, here's brand new information for you, but it w- the value was in getting the team together to all talk about um, how this person is affecting them um, at the bedside um, uh, as a consultant and, and in various levels. So uh, I think that's probably the, the take-home message for, for, for me in that traffic light system is simply just to um, have it there as a framework for discussion.
0: Well, I was just going to say, I thought that is a fantastic um, sort of presentation. It's interesting having been a person on the ground in the hospital doing some of this. So actually I'm not sure that we all know all the resources are available and the advantages of of today is that we're actually starting to see some of the pieces and how they fit together for supporting the staff uh, in this and, you know, in there I like, um you know sort of actually sitting down and documenting or, or at least articulating who's who's affected and and how. It's really like a sort of stakeholders map mm. of really setting it out because there'll be different people, which will circle back to the family and the child and the staff and 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 how the staff are affected differently and giving them a chance to actually see how they're affected. So it's a very helpful tool, and we perhaps need to get it out of the clutches of rehab and into the hospital more broadly. That was Professor Lynn Gillam, Professor Claire Delaney and Professor Helen Irving discussing the ethics of managing risk to staff. The National Children's Bioethics Conference is brought to you by the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre. The conference was supported by the generous donations of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre. If you enjoyed the podcast or the conference, please support our work by joining the Friends. The podcast was produced by Creative Services at Royal Children's Hospital. If you would like to know more about the Children's Bioethics Centre or join us in 2021 for our 13th National Children's Bioethics Conference, look us up on the website at www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential ethics. Be inspired.